Welcome to the Aggressive Life. What comes to mind when you think about explorers and adventurers? Maybe you think of Christopher Columbus, Lewis and Clark. My personal favorite is Ernest Shackleton in the story of the endurance. Utterly mesmerizing read if you haven't read that. Crazy. Today, we've got a new name for you. Colin O'Brady. Colin O'Brady. He's from Ireland. He's Irish descent. He does not have the Irish accent. I keep trying to find somebody on the aggressive life who's got an Irish accent who will who will sing Kellogg's Lucky Charms. They're magically delicious. I thought I had my taker because surely a real life adventurer would be that adventurous. But no, Colin doesn't have a Irish accent, even though he's obviously Sorry to disappoint. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you did disappoint. You really did. Because I know, I know a guy who's done the shit you've done would totally be up for something like singing Kellogg's Lucky Charms. It's great. Well, let me tell you, make sure everyone knows what you're what you've done. Colin is a ten-time world record-breaking explorer and endurance athlete who achieved the impossible first. It's history's first solo, unsupported, completely human power crossing of Antarctica. That's right. No sled dogs, no resupply points, no partner. He pulled a 300 plus pound sled battling wind chills as low as negative 80 degrees and paralyzing whiteouts for 54 days. A thousand miles. And that's just a sliver of the whole story. Collins achieved a World first ocean row, summited Everest twice, holds a seven summit speed record, and is a champion triathlete. Sounds remarkable. Well, it is because he's got a comeback story. I could tell the thing he's come back from, but let's just let's just talk about Colin and what he's actually come back from. He's going to share wisdom today in our podcast, and he also shares wisdom of his aggressive life in the new book called The 12-Hour Walk, Invest One Day, Conquer Your Mind, and Unlock Your Best Life. Welcome to the aggressive life, Colin McGrady. <laughs> oh Brady, oh Brady. Well, oh, there's Brady. a story. Story behind my last name actually is uh, I am American. My parents are American, grandparents American. But I think we came over on the boat, you know, a few four generations back or something like that. But my dad's last name's O'Connor. Actually, my mom's last name's Brady. So I was uh, I was born on a on a kind of a, a hippie upbringing, and they combined their last names to make O'Brady. So I don't even have my parents' last names oh, either. Fascinating. <laughs> oh, that's cool, man. So yeah. tell us about your comeback story. I, I thought I'd just hear people hear your version of the pain and difficulty and all that stuff. What happened? Yeah. So, you know, you, you gave me a great intro with all those accolades and world records and crossing continents and all that. But, uh, you know, back 14 or so years ago, my life looked nothing like this. Um, I was a collegiate swimmer. I swam at Yale. So I was a, you know, an athlete. Um, but, uh, after college I had no money, but I always dreamed of traveling the world. So I painted some houses as a kid, kind of like socked away a few thousand dollars here, a few thousand dollars there. And said, when I graduate from college, I'm going to go kind of spread my wings in the world as a young person took off, uh, on a trip in 2007 alone, just, you know, surfboard backpack, sleeping on floors and youth hostels and hitchhiking around through New Zealand, Australia and Fiji, where I ultimately actually met my wife at the front end of this trip, my now wife. Um, so that was a, that was a win for this trip for sure. Um, but then I found myself on a beach in rural Thailand 
And I guess because I was 22 years old and didn't have a fully formed prefrontal cortex, uh, so to speak, I I saw a guy jumping a flaming jump rope and I thought, hey, you know, that looks like a good idea. Um, And I jumped that flaming jump rope and in an instant, my life changed. You know, my the rope wrapped around my legs, let my body completely on fire to my neck. Um, Survival mode kind of kicked in when I needed it most. And I jumped into the ocean to extinguish the flames, but not before about 25% of my body was severely burned, um, particularly my legs and feet. And the worst part about it, obviously the pain was immense, but I was also really in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I was in Thailand, but I was actually on a small island on the Gulf of Thailand, you know, no, no ambulance. I had a moped ride down a dirt path to a one room nursing station, um, underwent, you know, about eight surgeries and a couple of rural hospitals in Thailand where, uh, there was a cat running around my bed and across my chest and this sort of makeshift ICU. I mean, I was like really pretty far away from any, um, you know, proper medical facilities and, um, the worst part about it, I think, you know, despite the physical fatigue, physical pain was really the emotional pain. When the doctor came in one day, looked me straight in the eyes and he said, Hey, look, Colin, I hate to tell you this, but you'll probably never walk again normally. Um, cause the way that my sort of knees and ankle uh, ligaments and everything were so damaged. Mm. And so the, the, I guess the, the silver lining in this whole story is my incredible mother. Um, she arrived to Thailand on about the fourth or fifth day by the time she was able to, you know, fly to the other side of the world and find me in this remote part of Thailand. And she just filled me up with positivity. I, I know now that she was kind of in the hallways crying and pleading with the doctors for good news, but she really never showed me her own fear, her own, you know, mm. nervousness, any of that. She just came into my hospital room with this huge smile on her face, and this air of positivity, just her daring me to dream about the future. And she'd say things to me like, when you get out of here, Colin, let's set a goal. You know, what, what do you want to do when you get out of here? And I focused, I said, do you think it's possible? Do you think I could one day complete a triathlon, which is not something I'd ever done before. And my mother and the incredible woman she was, she, she could have easily been like, I said, set a goal, but like, look at your legs, like maybe something more realistic, you know, walk to the bathroom without me calling, carrying you. Exactly. Exactly. But so, but she was like, great. If that's what you feel like you want to do, like, let's talk about it. Let's train for it. Literally, you know, she said, Hey doc, my son's training for a triathlon. This Thai doctor brought me in some weights thinking I was like out of my mind, but I'm like lifting weights with my arms, obviously couldn't move my legs. And eventually I was in the hospital for a couple months, flown back to Portland, Oregon, where I grew up. Um, I was carried on and off the plane. I was placed in a wheelchair, still hadn't taken a single step by the time I got back to the United States. Um, and then my mom really continued to encourage me. She, I remember one day she kind of, I was sitting in my wheelchair chair in her kitchen. And she said, today, you got to take one step, Colin, just one step. And she grabbed a wooden uh, chair from our kitchen table and put it one step in front of my wheelchair. She said, you got to take one step out of this wheelchair and get into the, this chair in front of you. And she moved the chair five steps away the next day, the next day, 10 steps away. And then ultimately, you know, a year and a half later, I, you know, I eventually moved to Chicago, took a job there and I was, you know, focused on training for triathlon. And so I was working in finance and, you know, signed up for the Chicago triathlon and just a year and a half after being burned in this fire, signed up for the race, um, competed and completed the Chicago triathlon. But the biggest surprise that was still in store for me that day was my first race ever told I would never walk again normally. And I get to the finish line. It turns out I actually won the entire Chicago triathlon placing first at of about 5,000 other participants Jeez. on Jeez. the day. Um, and wow. that opened up a whole, a whole different doorway to what you said in your intro of these various other world record expeditions and things like that. Well, let me ask you some questions here. Just curious. So yes. this was just your basic clothesline jump rope that was on fire. 
that someone was jumping with and you did and it, it really just that thing caught your body on yeah, fire so, that quickly you know you can you can google this like thailand flaming jump rope or something like that and it's not like this is like just a made-up thing like people do this it's like fairly common on the beaches in thailand you know when people are just kind of um, I don't know. They do it. Like, I didn't like come up with the idea. Obviously they were yeah. doing it. Like yeah. the resort that I was staying at, it was kind of like double Dutch, you know, like two guys on the end of one big, long, you know, rope and the rope itself was doused in kerosene. And what I realized later is that usually, obviously people do trip or don't jump the rope perfectly, but it usually kind of just knocks off their leg. Almost like you're putting your finger through a candle flame, right. you know, you're just, it's only touching you for a second and then bounces off, but they had just lit the rope. And so there was still some excess kerosene on the rope. And mm. so when the rope, it tangled around my legs, Ugh. but it also splattered my body of excess kerosene Ugh. up to my neck and then my neck and whole body completely ignited. So it was just kind of obviously my own fault for jumping a flaming jump rope in the first place, but that it was kind of the worst case scenario from there. Dag. Yeah. So if you didn't have your mom, who was pushing you, what do you think your recovery would have been like? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I get to that finish line of the triathlon and find out that I've won the whole Chicago triathlon. You know, some people are like, oh, did you just think in that moment, wow, I'm a superhuman athlete. I must be so amazing. And I was like, no, quite the opposite. Well, my mind went in that moment was immediately back to that Thai hospital wondering, exactly your question. You know, what would have happened had my mom not forced me to look towards the future and set this measurable goal? And I realized that that was a sliding doors moment. You know, I think I could have, I was falling into complete defeat, trauma, depression, et cetera. And my mother kind of, kind of snatched me some of the grasp of that and pointed my life in such a different direction. And I think that everything I've done ever since was from that moment. I didn't call it this at the time, but I, I call it this now. And I kind of a, a core principle of my new book, The 12 Hour Walk is I call it a possible mindset, you know, an empowered way of thinking that unlocks a life of limitless possibilities, you know, and I believe that really, we all have this ability inside of us. I think all of us as humans have these, you know, untapped reservoirs of human potential, but it's really a matter of kind of unlocking that. And my mother certainly did this through me, through this for me in the face of tragedy. Well, give us the 30,000 foot view of why the title 12 hour walk. Yeah. So I wrote another book a couple years ago called The Impossible First. It's a New York Times bestselling memoir um, that I wrote a couple years ago. And that specifically is about my life and um, becoming the first person in history to cross the entire continent of Antarctica solo, unsupported and unassisted. And so that my first book is really a memoir chronicling that journey as well as kind of my whole life, the burn accident, all the component parts of my own personal journey, how I got there and how I achieved what many thought was impossible, this solo Antarctica cross. And you mentioned Ernest Shackleton earlier. He's certainly uh, my, my favorite in the zeitgeist of exploration, someone who I've gained a ton of inspiration to that book. Like you said, the Endurance is just the, one of the, the greatest books, I think, of all time. I mean, time. they're climbing um, to get over, was it Elephant <laughs> Island? They're, yeah, they're, they're trying to mountain climb with freaking <laughs> screws through the bottom of their basic boots where today with the most high-tech mountain gear you have, people have a hard time doing it. It's like one of the most impressive stories of survival. And I'm certainly when I was out there pulling my sled across Antarctica facing, you know, 60, 70 foot or 60, 70 um, minus wind chill and minus four degree temperatures. And I was pulling a 375 pound sled, but I did often think of Shackleton. I was like, well, I'm wearing Gore-Tex. Like, and I'm wearing, you know, and I've got like a, a sat phone with me. And you're thinking about those guys, they're surviving out there for several years. So a different breed in the early 1900s is so impressive. But the 12 hour walk, um, my new book comes out 
coming out um, here. I'm excited that it's coming out right when you guys hear this podcast drop, um, August 2nd. And I walked every single day in Antarctica for 12 hours. So I pulled my sled 375 pounds, 1,000 miles, 12 hours per day. Um, and I was on my last bite of food when I finished. So I, I lost wow. about 30, 40 pounds. Um, the reason my sled was so heavy is I couldn't carry enough food really to feed me. So I was on a 3,000 calorie deficit, you know, hips and ribs sticking out. Um, I was actually racing this other guy and ended up beating him by a few days. That's a whole other story. But then during the COVID lockdown, um, in the spring of 2020, I think you know, we all experienced this kind of being locked in our houses, not knowing what the world was happening in the world, really disorienting time, I think, for everyone. And I had completed my Antarctica crossing a couple years before that in 2018. And I was kind of in a funk sitting at my house uh, in Oregon at the time. And I was like, man, when was the last time I felt peace and calm and just really kind of, I don't know, just happy, I guess. And strangely, it was in these moments in Antarctica, despite the challenge of it, I found these deep meditative flow states within myself, pulling my sled every single day. And so I said to my wife, I said, Hey, I'm just going to go for a walk all day today. I'm going to walk out our front door in Oregon and I'm going to go for a walk. And I ended up staying out there for 12 hours, the same duration of time that I pulled my sled. And I came back and for the first time during COVID lockdown, I felt just this semblance of just calm in my own body, mind and spirit. And I realized I'm proud of my Antarctica crossing, but I realized that any single person, any of us can benefit from taking a day to ourselves, putting our phones in airplane mode, being in silence and stillness and literally going for a walk. And so the entire book is about how we can overcome limiting beliefs. And I think that there's a power that we have inside of ourselves and our own minds to cultivate, like I said, what I call a possible mindset. So I'll ask you this question, which is, you know, you're, you're, you've got a podcast. I'm sure you're on social media. I am as well. All those things. Like what's the longest that you have spent, um, in your adult life unplugged. And what I mean by unplugged is every time you look at your phone, the clock resets every single time you talk to your kids or the TV's on, or you listen to the radio or podcast or every external input, the clock resets. What would you say is the longest amount of time that you've spent? Oh gosh. Since I owned a cell phone, right? (laughs) Because boy, that it was a lot. I don't know, probably a week. Uh, Intentionally, I would have done a week long fast. Week long fast by yourself. No, no, uh, no, no one there. No one talking to you. No, no, I wouldn't. No, not a, not a week long fast in isolation with everything. Yeah. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So just by yourself, like actually like alone. Well, no, you you asking about the amount of time alone or the amount of time absent from a screen. No, but like the screen is one element, but yeah, alone. It's actually alone uh, in your thoughts, yeah, not listening to music, not talking to anyone. Uh, probably three days, probably three, three days, days two years ago. Yeah. That's great. That's great. That I, So I've asked thousands of people that question. The average response is an hour, maybe right. my phone died and I happened to be, you know, <laughs> you know, right. far away from my car or something like that. Right. Yep. Um, so really the book is, is a, is a call to action. You know, the, the subtitle of the book is 12 hour walk invest one day, conquer your mind and unlock your best life. And I really fundamentally believe that we have the ability within ourselves to cultivate this possible mindset, but we're so distracted by all the day-to-day things. And so it's really a call to action to say, Hey, I'm inviting you to take one day. You don't have to train for it. I don't care if you walk a mile or you walk 50 miles. I don't care how many breaks you take, but the exercise is literally walk out your front door 
turn your phone on airplane mode and spend 12 hours by yourself. No music, no podcast, no nothing, just walking in stillness and silence. And you can have the ambient city noise around where you live or anything like that. It's not like you have to be in like the solitude of a location, but you're just not engaging with anything other than your own thoughts. And the book takes you to these edges of all of these places of adventure. So it takes you to the Drake Passage where I'm rowing a boat across uh, the you know most treacherous ocean in the world. Or it takes you to the summit of Mount Everest you know, with my wife and I climbing Mount Everest together. It takes you on the journey of Antarctica. But it brings you through the lens of answering these questions because I've asked people, what's standing in the way of living your best life? And more often than not, people say, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have the right friends. I don't have the right community. All these limiting beliefs, right? These beliefs we've had built up in our mind. And the book is really a simple strategy of A, breaking down those all through rich storytelling and how we can all overcome them. But really with a one, like I said, one culminating final thing of as fun as it has been for me in my last book and to tell my stories of my adventures, I love inviting people into the arena themselves to say, yeah, you, I could tell you a million stories about crazy adventures that I've been on that are, you know, incredible that I'm proud of, world record breaking, et cetera. But I'm inviting you to step into the arena, to have an adventure yourself. Invest one day, conquer your mind, unlock your best life, take a walk for 12 hours and you'll find a, a new you on the other side. So you've done a lot of impressive physical things. I've got a hard question for you, a hard question because I think about it a lot and I don't get to ask it a lot, but you're one of these guys who I'd like to ask this question to. So when I ask this question, I want want you to know it's in full and complete respect. I just would like to know, okay? And, And it comes on the heels of, Antarctica, I mean, we just touched on Antarctica and triathlon. I mean, your stuff is pretty intense physically. You had the Explorer's Grand Slam, which was summoning the tallest peaks on each of the seven continents and skiing to the last degree of the North and South Poles. That's that's really, really crazy. Um, I could give all the times on all this stuff. It was, it's really, it's really, really impressive. Why? 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 Why such intense and extreme physical feats? Yeah, you know, ever since I was young, I've been, uh, I love, personally love sports. I remember watching the Olympics when I was, you know, seven years old in Barcelona Olympics. I'm 37 now. So uh, 30 years ago, watching the Barcelona Olympics and just being fascinated by athletes and the physicality um, and kind of what it takes to be the best in the world at something. And so that's always just been a really curiosity and a passion. And my life has followed that a lot. Like I said, I was a you know nationally ranked swimmer. I swam at Yale. I was a nationally ranked soccer player in high school growing up. So just sports have always been a medium for me where I've been able to um, sort of explore my own human potential. But I think on the other side of that burn accident, particularly with triathlon, which is, you know, tri- you know, endurance sports, yes, you're racing other people. But what has become even more interesting to me over time has been finding the deeper parts of myself and finding the deeper parts of, you know, the interior parts of my own psyche. And so mm-hmm. when I was crossing Antarctica, trying to be the first person to cross in history. Of course, there was sort of that achievement or that accolade that was out there as a carrot of kind of gave purpose or direction to that crossing. But ultimately, you know, the, my first book, The Impossible First, the last chapter of that book is called Infinite Love. Um, the last chapter of the book isn't, I'm awesome, look at me, I did this thing no one's ever done. Because ultimately, I went out there on a spiritual journey, a spiritual quest to feel the sort of edges of my own potential, to be alone within my thoughts, my own psyche. And what I found out there was being all alone, isolated from everything in this place that is literally feels like it's trying to kill you every second because it's so cold and so harsh and so dangerous. 
I ended up finding this resonance of, of deep love and compassion and energy and connectedness to soul and purpose. Um, so for me, these expeditions are my way of, of connecting to that, you know, but like I said, a spiritual journey of sorts. And I think that, you know, I, I, I do all this work. I have a nonprofit where I go and around to speak to school kids, um, which I'm really passionate about. And I've, you know, just, I've had over a million kids enrolled in our programs over the years. Um, and one question I love asking students is what's your Everest? You know, like I've climbed Everest twice, but what's your Everest? You know, kid, kids, it's easy metaphor. You know, what's your big goal? What's your dream? What's your hope? Um, and kids are amazing because kids, I think we are born with what I call this possible mindset. Kids, you ask a nine-year-old kid, you know, what's their Everest? And they're not having all these limiting beliefs standing in their way. They dream with limitless possibilities implicitly. So it's fun to hear these answers. You know, Colin, my Mount Everest to be the first person in my family to graduate from college. Or my Mount Everest is to make sure the snow leopards are off the endangered species. So, you know, I've heard thousands and thousands of responses to that question. But what I've come back around to, to answer your, your question is, I... My, my Everest or my canvas, so to speak, of expression in the world is going to the ends of the earth and mountaintops because I personally derive a lot of pleasure, intrigue, interest from that. And it's been deeply fulfilling for me in my own life. But this is like, and the reason I love the concept behind the 12-hour walk is that might not be your thing. Like, look, I don't blame you if you don't want to go to the end of the earth and freeze your butt off by yourself in the middle of nowhere. Like, that's not for everyone. But I do believe that we all have this passion, this zest for life, this desire to find deep fulfillment and joy and happiness and love and community. Um, and I think we all have the ability through different mediums to explore that. My exploration just happens to be in these uh, sort of endurance extreme environments that light me up. Well, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I'll, I'll just take it at face value and say that 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 makes sense. And I could see your your face. You're beaming with the radiance of joy right now as you talk about that. That's that's really good. The reason I ask, and I'd love to get your opinion on this, is I'm I'm pretty adventurous. I'm not doing freaking Antarctica. <laughs> this is kind of stuff that you're doing, but I'm I'm pretty adventurous. So I'm I'm pretty tapped into the oh kind of the extreme athlete, the adventure kind of folks. And it seems like the guys that are really extreme, I don't, I don't want to start naming names right now, but it seems to, from what I know of their story, they're trying to medicate for a hole that's inside their heart. They're trying to, they're trying to overcome a father wound they're trying to overcome something that, or just just block it out, block it out, block. So keep running, keep running, keep running, keep climbing, keep climbing, keep climbing. And um, and I I didn't know if like any of that kind of stuff was going on with you, but then when you talked about the the burn, it was like, man, that would have gotten you started. Just like a goal that says, hey, I am back, I am going to be healthy. I don't know. Do you interact with any of those it, other folks or other peers? Yeah, Does any yeah, that no, make sense? No, it's a great question. Um, you know, of course peers in the space and people I admire and look up to and people I consider colleagues who have done a lot of extraordinary things. Um, you know, I've been, it's a very insightful question. Um, and I appreciate you asking it. I don't get asked it a lot, but I reminds me, um, I've been on Joe Rogan's podcast a couple of times and he stopped me. I think it was the first time he was interviewing me. And he was like, in the same vein that you're asking this question, he says to me, like, I've interviewed a lot of guys like you guys have done like hardcore stuff or adventure or this or that. And the other thing he's like, every single time I interview someone like that, they're coming from this kind of dark place. He said to me, I remember he said to me like, 
there's something different about what you're talking about. Like you're coming about like love and whole wholeness and connection. And again, to me, it's not a, a criticism or a critique of somebody else's path or whatever, but it's just to say that I don't really come at it from that same standpoint um, of needing to kind of prove myself or to, to somebody else or whatever. It's really, you know, what's been beautiful for me also is my wife and I, we really have dreamed up these projects and these adventures together. You know, mm. she's really been my rock in all of this. You know, I didn't talk to anyone else in Antarctica except for her on a satellite phone. And I always say to her, you know, I was alone out there. Of course, we know I was alone in the physical space, but energetically, I feel like she walked every single step with me. Like we have intertwined our souls and our love for one another through these extreme places. And you know, what that has given us in our marriage and in our life has been so invaluable. Like we trust, literally trust each other with our lives. We've put that to the test. And last year, um, and I write about this in, in the 12 hour walk, um, there's a whole chapter on this. She said to me, she's not like a hardcore adventurer. That's not her identity in the world. Um, and, uh, you know, not an athlete, you know, in a traditional sense, she's certainly an active, healthy person, but like, you know, it's just not her core identity. And she said to me after all this, she says, do you think I can climb Everest one day? Um, and she said that just before COVID. And I was like, we could train you up for it, whatever. I won't, I won't spoiler alert the whole thing. Cause I want you to buy, buy the book and read the book and take the walk. <laughs> um, but we went on that journey together and ultimately stood on the top of the world together to share that. It wasn't a world record, to, so to speak. She was the 89th um, American female to ever summit Everest, 670th female to ever summit Everest. But her journey from effectively a novice to together, to literally connecting each other by a rope and ultimately getting ourselves to the top of the world yeah. together was one of the most beautiful experiences of my entire life. And so again, to your point, yeah. that wasn't to prove to anyone else other than have this deep, meaningful, shared experience experience um and kind of test the limits of her potential and our potential together and it we come back into our day-to-day -day life at our home and with our dogs and our family yeah. and whatever and i think we're stronger for it that's it's a beautiful that's really a good a good point to make as you as you go into that with your wife i want i want to dig into the everest thing uh, yeah i do want to dig into that into that story in and of itself but going back to my original question that does set you apart. The people I'm thinking of, they're not doing anything with their marriage. I don't even know if they're married. I mean, most of them are not married at all, or at least they never never talk about it. So the, the Joe Rogan would notice there's something different about you. Uh, that's really insightful because I've had some people say, hey, you should have so-and-so on your podcast. You should have so-and-so and so. And I, I think I could land them, but it wouldn't be a good conversation because I'd have to put my pastor hat on, which is my day job, and saying, dude, what are you? What are you trying to accommodate for? You, you need some healing here. Wait, what? It's okay. Your dad hurt you. You keep trying to earn your dad's approval, and he's not going to be able to give you approval because he's dead now. But you, mm -hmm. you can stop running. Or I'm not going to go on. I'm like I, I can't. Sure. I can't. I can't have these people in the podcast just talk about their um, accomplishments without without drilling in. So I thought, okay, let's just just try touch in here on Colin. And my gosh, you're giving me you're giving me like the perfect. Amazing answers. Amaz and maybe if I had those people on the podcast and I asked them these things, maybe they would have amazing answers too. I just have never been able to talk with you. So it's an interesting story that was a huge turning point for me in my life around this specific topic. Um, early on in my professional triathlon career, 
Um, I met my wife in 2007, right before I got burned. We were together for a few years, you know, young, young in love in our early 20s, um, which was beautiful. And then I won the Chicago triathlon and I got the opportunity to have my first sponsor and become a professional triathlete, um, mm. which to be clear, is not like the NBA or MLB. It's like still sleeping on my buddy's couches and just riding my bike and trying to, you know, make something <laughs> of myself in the world. But ultimate race in 25 countries, six different continents was a beautiful experience. Um, and my goal was to, to go to the Olympics, you know, to win an Olympic gold medal. And as a result of that, I really need to travel a ton. Um, that's just the way the international circuit, it's a very international sport. You need to live abroad, be away from home for a long period of time. And I moved to Australia and I was uh, living with a, a woman who I was training with. There was about 10 of us over there. I was living with a woman. And she was the current reigning world champion, uh, Olympic, Olympic, Olympian, world champion, incredible, incredible athlete, one of the best in the world. Um, and at the time, I wasn't married, but it was my, Jenna was my girlfriend, of course, now my wife, um, had strained our relationship, how much traveling I, I was doing. I'm going to be in Australia for six months. And we're not going to see each other. You know, it's like really straining on our marriage, ultimately, ultimately our marriage, our relationship. So I asked this woman, I said, the world champion, I said, what's your favorite race? Like, what's your favorite accomplishment? And then she's won four world championships at this point. So I'm assuming she's going to say to me, oh, when I won the Ironman world championships and everyone told me I was amazing and awesome. And she says to me, she goes, you know, Colin, my most, most important race in my life was when I came second at the Manchester um, Commonwealth Games. And I said, I don't understand. You've won four world championships. How can not one of those be your favorite? And she goes, well, I grew up really poor and my family has never been able to see me race, but she's from the UK. She goes, when I was in Manchester and the race happened to be there, my family was there that day. She says, you know what the loneliest feeling in the world is, Colin? She goes, to stand on top of an Olympic or a world championship podium on the other side of the world and not have a single person there that you love or care about you and your family. Wow. And I, I mean, I, I still have goosebumps, you know, telling that story. And, you know, this this happened 12 years ago, um, like I said, in my, my early mid-20s. And I immediately, from that moment onward, I flew home and I said to Jenna, my now wife, I said, I want to pursue this. I want to pursue excellence. I want to be the best in the world at what I try to do, but none of it matters if we're not doing it together. And so if we can't do it together, I was like, I'd rather just do something else. And it was such an important and valuable lesson to me, particularly in the context of what you're talking about, which is a realignment around values and a realignment around balance and a realignment around you could chase all of these things and end up on the proverbial mountaintop or in my sense, a literal mountaintop. And if all those other pieces of your life, love, community, family, friendship, all that aren't there, like it doesn't, the accomplishment means nothing. And right. so I've really kept that as an anchor and a North star for me throughout my life. Well, you got a good thing going on, brother. Uh, you know, first of all, you're smiling as you talk. A lot of people don't smile as much as you have. So you've got a really good spirit demeanor about you. So you're doing, you're doing something right. So well done. Good stuff. Speaking of wife, did that, uh, did that burning rope burn your rope? You got any kids? <laughs> um, we are, we are literally right now actively trying. Uh, so my, my rope right. is fine. So stuff is working. Stuff yeah, is working. Stuff, stuff's working. <laughs> the, rope, and, uh, the rope is on fire. Exactly. It came right up to there, but didn't quite get there. <laughs> thank God. Um, but, um, but yeah, no, we are uh, really excited at this phase of our life to, uh, start a family and have kids and all that. So we're, uh, we're, we're very actively trying and, uh, check back with me in a few months and hopefully one <laughs> in the oven, so to speak. Today's podcast is brought to you by Athletic Greens. 
It's a product I use every day. I started taking AG1 because I don't watch my diet too closely, but I know that I'm getting all the vitamins, minerals, and nutrients I can, as well as hydrating with 12 ounces of water right off the bat at the beginning of the day. One scoop of AG1, it's got 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, and it doesn't taste like it. It actually tastes great. AG1 is a micro habit with big benefits. For less than $3 a day, you can take care of your health and invest in your future. It's recommended by professional athletes, health experts, and me. (laughs) To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packets with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash aggressive life to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. So go get you some and let's get back to the show. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, there's so many things you're saying, Colin. I'm like, ooh, let's send that. But then I don't want to have the other thing pass too fast. So I'm not forgetting about Everest. I want to dig into Everest in just a moment. But you talked about the professional stuff. Tell me how this works, because this is a lot of jack you're having to lay out for just transportation to Antarctica, let alone supplies and all that stuff. Like, what, like this is, this is. I'm starting to see, this is your professional gig here. So what does that look like? I mean, how many sponsors do you need? How many hours a day do you train? Um just how do you think about finances with this whole thing? How's, how's it all fit together? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really great question. And actually, uh, my book, The 12-Hour Walk, breaks down 10 most common limiting beliefs we have. And I surveyed my Instagram audience and said, like, literally, before I started writing the book, I said, okay, everyone out there, what's the number one thing standing in the way of you living your best life? And I just want to see, like, how people answer that question. And I received thousands of answers through my Instagram and stuff like that. And The number one question, the number one thing was money. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough money. Um, And the other, you know, the other 10 are derivative of what people said. I don't have enough time. I don't have the right community. So each chapter in the book, The 12-Hour Walk, breaks down one of these most common limiting beliefs. But one of them, and I was like, hey, great. If everyone's asking the same question about money and finances, like, let's talk about this. You know, let's talk about this. There's an entire chapter in the book dedicated to that and my own personal journey. So I mentioned before, like, didn't grow up with a lot of money. Um, You know, as a kid, I literally, you know, I was a place, you know, you know, it's not like I was, I wasn't like, afraid that there wasn't gonna be food on the table, but there wasn't much room for extra. You know, we didn't, we didn't travel a lot. Um, you know, my parents would buy me one pair of shoes at the beginning of school year and be like, you know, these are your pair of shoes for the whole year, you know, kind of thing. And so, you know, we were, you know, pretty, pretty just, you know, basic kind of life, which was a great way to grow up, to be honest, but um, didn't have a lot of extra. And so when I wanted these big dreams out in the world, it wasn't like I was like, you know, hey, mommy, daddy, whoever, you know, write me a big check because I want to fly to the North Pole. It was like, okay, how are you going to figure out how to get there? Just like you said, the bare bone costs of that are astronomical. Um, Jenna and I, our first project that we dreamed up together, we called it Beyond 7-2, which was the Explorer's Grand Slam, climbing the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents and completing expeditions of both the North and South Pole. And at the time, fewer than 50 people had ever completed the Grand Slam. And I was going to attempt to be the first person, the fastest to do it, sorry, the fastest to do it. Um, so I aimed to do it all of that in four months. So basically back to back to back to back is the summit of Everest to Kilimanjaro to Kilimanjaro to North Pole, North Pole, you know, the place to place to place. 
So we dreamed this whole thing up. We had just gotten engaged, actually. We dreamed this whole thing up. We said, and when we do this, we want to start a nonprofit for kids and have impact. And we impact our one-bedroom apartment in Portland with this idea on a whiteboard. And we're like, it's going to cost $500,000, half a million dollars. And we're you know, in our mid-20s. And we've got like, you know, $10,000 to our name if we like pooled all of our life savings like total. And this is the moment where most good ideas die because you're like, well, hey, one day I'd love to do that, but I'm not a millionaire. Like, how could I ever pull this thing off? And instead, Jen and I looked at one another. And again, I, I got to keep coming back to it because I believe so much in it with this possible mindset. It said, great. So we have $10,000. How can we turn that into $5,000 for this project? How do, you, how do you even get sponsors? We've heard of this thing called sponsorship. We don't even like know anything about it. How do we you know, start a nonprofit? Like there's a bunch of red tape and government forms you have to fill out. What do we have? What are our assets? And this is where I think we define things between a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset, right? The scarcity mindset says, I only have $10,000, so I'm never going to have 500,000. Mm -hmm. The abundance mindset, which is I teach through the book of how to shift towards that abundance mindset says, I have $10,000 right now, but my goal requires me to have $500,000. How do I go about doing that? And ultimately, again, I give a long story about it, but we spent, we, we took our whole life savings, went to a creative agency and we're like, well, we at least need a great website to be able to convey our idea and look professional when we meet people about it. So we basically bet our entire life savings. And I remember, I remember writing the check and being like, well, that was all of our money and saying to Jenna, what if no one wants to sponsor a project? And she winks at me and she goes, well, at least we'll have a cool website. Ha ha ha. <laughs> and for the next 18 months, I'll tell you what, we tried to meet every single person we possibly could and had every door slammed in our face. No, no, not a good idea. What do you mean? You've never climbed any mountains. All of these moments <laughs> where you could easily give up. Wow. Then I get this. We're, we're getting close to this. We're still several hundred thousand dollars short and we're thinking now we might have to give up, but I'm the perseverance is just, I'm like, I gotta, I gotta keep pushing. Knocked on every single door, try to get meetings with any person we could. And I'm in a spin class. I'm in a spin class at a 24 hour fitness near my house. Cause my buddy invited me to spin class. I'm a professional athlete. I'm like, I don't go to spin classes. And he's like, okay, meet this woman. She was a world record holder back in the day. You'll love her, whatever. So I, I go in this you know, woman, she's in her mid fifties, but she's super fit. He introduced me to her and he says, Hey, you know, meet Kathy. Well, hi, Kathy. Nice to meet you. Um, you know, she was a world record holder for the 5k back in the seventies and she brushed it off all oh, a million years ago, whatever. And, I, and she goes, Oh, I heard you're trying to do this world record thing. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Tell her about it. She's like, cool. You know, good luck with that. I go, I keep spinning. I get off the spin bike and I say, oh, Kathy, it was nice to meet you. Walk away. She walks over. She goes, actually, that's a cool idea. And you're trying to impact kids and kids' health. And I love what you guys are doing. You know, you should talk to my, you know, my husband. He, and she waves over this guy. You should talk to him about it. We're this random gym, 24-hour fitness by my house. I'm like, okay, whatever. Say to this guy. And I'm not pitching him. Literally the 15 second, like, hey, I'm trying to do this thing. Start a nonprofit because I'm just passionate about it. Maybe the same way that you see me smiling right now. I'm like, yeah. just that way. But I'm just talking about it. And he looks at me, he goes, are you looking for sponsors? And I'm like, uh, yeah. And he goes, I actually think the company I work at might be able to help you. And I was like, where do you work? And he's like, oh, hold on. Let me get you, let me get you a business card. So he ruffles through his gym bag, hands me a business card. I look at it. Mark Parker, CEO, Nike. <laughs> I'm talking to the CEO wow. of Nike at a random local gym. But the point in the story is the abundance mindset we could have quit 
a thousand steps right. before that, when the first couple of people, and in the end of the day, the breakthrough, when we get Nike to come on board and sponsor us, and we have all this impact and work with their nonprofit and all this kind of stuff. I'm really proud of that, but it's just, you never know who you're talking right. to. And the point is, is don't treat the CEO of Nike different than the Starbucks right. barista. Go out in the world, put your best foot right. forward, be kind to every single person because we're all humans and really have that effervescence and that passion for what you're doing. And I believe the universe will conspire to find a way to help you achieve that when you show, when you put that energy forth of, I want to achieve this. So anyways, super long yeah. answer to your question, well, which is this stuff's expensive. I don't have the money or a trust fund to lean on to, to do this stuff. And I have a very entrepreneurial streak and an ability to say, hey, what assets do I have in this moment? $10,000, let's make a website. Obviously, my yeah. life has evolved and changed since then. I've had a number of other financial successes, but have all come from a place of passion and what the impact I want to have in the world and having that really dedicated why. It's not, I want $500,000 because I want my bank account to be more full. It's, I want to do this. I'm passionate about pursuing this. And through that passion, I want to impact people positively. So that gives you that juice, that energy to keep pushing forward. When a th the first thousand people say no to you and you still want to ask the thousand and first person the next question. I think the abundance mindset is a, is a great handhold. I mean, let's face it. I've met a lot of people who have never met a glass half full. They've never seen a glass half right. full. Never, every single one is half empty. And I, the abundance scarcity mindset is absolutely true. But I think what, you're, what you just described is tapping into something different. Your abundance mindset did get you moving, but I would call it more a reap what you sow. You talk about the universe bringing things back. Um, if I look at God as a personal entity, a personal deity, he says, reap what you sow. Mm -hmm. You plant a lot of seeds, Colin, yeah. a lot. I mean, you just, you just can't plant and can't plant and can't plant and, and therefore you reap something. Most people, they plant one seed, it's one and done, literally one and done. Well, I don't see anything coming up there. Forget it. You just, you just kept going. You just kept, kept going. And all of a sudden, bam, something happened. That's, that actually is fascinating to me because that tells me that you are intellectually and emotionally more resilient than you are physically resilient. You don't, we only know about your physical resiliency because of your emotional and intellectual resiliency. That, that's really impressive. Yeah, and, I, and to me, the the whole thing, and again, why I frame this book, The 12-Hour Rock, around this concept of a possible mindset, because, you know, you could you could meet LeBron James or, you know, someone like that, and you're like, okay, like, I'm not six foot eight, you know, and can, like, dunk a basketball. Like, right, that's like, I mean, obviously, he's all, all sorts of things, not just a physical specimen, but he's like, like I'm just not that tall, you know, like, yes. I'm just not that, you know, that this, that's not my genetic makeup. But I fundamentally believe that we all have the tools to cultivate this mindset. We have the ability to work on these mental exercises to really unlock our best lives, which is why the subtitle of the book is invest one day, conquer your mind and unlock your best life. Like it really is within that mindset. And I, uh, another one of my favorite, you know, phrases or thoughts is, um, you know, failure plus perseverance equals success. You know, I always say like, I either, I either won or I learned, right? So like in trying a bunch of things, to your point, planting all of those seeds, I didn't realize that the thousand other times I gave this elevator pitch about the Explorers Grand Slam, when the guy said no to me, it's easy to be like, I tried it, I pitched it, and whoever, you know, guy or girl I was pitching at that moment just said no to me. Okay, you failed. But actually, I learned how to say my thing 
maybe one word more articulately, maybe one more, you know, sharper, maybe one more dialed into the concept. So the thousandth time when I'm unbeknownst standing in front of the CEO of Nike, I have a 30 second polished elevator pitch that comes off authentic and genuine, meaning yes. those other perceived yeah. failures, they weren't failures. They were learning. And you pair that learning with the perseverance, you end up with success. You end up with that abundance. And that mindset is something that we all have the ability to tap into for sure. And actually, even, you know, again, why the walk I think is so powerful is you start the walk and go 12 hours. Like, I can't spend 12 hours by myself. Like, that's too far. Like, that's too hard. Like, what? Like, no, like, that's too much. And I'm like, you know what? Every person listening here, actually, you can. And that's just your limiting belief telling you, oh, I can't do that. That's too hard. I'm not that kind of person. I'm not an athlete. I'm not even asking you to be an athlete. I'm literally saying 12 hours tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, that time is going to pass. And at the end of that, if you prove to yourself, wait, I do have the perseverance. I do have the grit. I have the ability to commit to something and stick to it for an entire day. What's the ripple effect of that throughout all the rest of your life? When you have your new idea, when you want to start that new business, when you want to you know, stick with it with a, a person or a relationship that's tough in the moment rather than cutting and running, you go, okay, no, I want to stick to this. Um, and so the 12 hour walk is really just a metaphor or a lesson for all of these things that you can then apply to your own life. And like I say, unlock your best life as a result. Well, we've got to learn to trust and obey our own voice. You know, when I, when I go for a workout, uh, I, I will actually say out loud what I'm going to do because I want to obey my own voice. Because if I can't obey my own voice and listen to my own voice, how am I going to listen to anybody else's voice? You know, so I mean, I'll just say it today. Today. I'm doing a leg workout and shoulder workout, and it's going to include lunges. I just, I just said it. Damn, I got to do that. I ha- and I, I hate lunges. <laughs> I, I, I hate, I hate lunges. They're awful. But when I say it, like, okay, I got to, I got to get it in. Speaking, speaking of lunges, let's get to Everest. Everest. And your wife wasn't a climber. What kind of training did she have to do uh, to be able to have a shot at Everest? I'm going to answer that question, but I, I'd be remiss to not say one thing about what you said because I just love what you said so much about yeah. saying it out loud and the power of that. I had the worst day ever in Antarctica. My first day pulling my sled, I literally couldn't even pull my sled the first day and I almost gave up. Oh. And the following morning, I got up. I was crying so much. I just had frozen tears on my cheek. That's like the all-time most pathetic feeling <laughs> in the world. Like That's how like down on myself I was. But I fundamentally believe we are the stories that we tell ourselves. We're the stories that we tell ourselves, exactly like you said and actually expressing that out loud. And I'd never done that myself. I'd always kind of interior dialogue, but in the most negative moment, I got outside of my tent in Antarctica and I yelled at the top of my lungs as I'm saying all these negative things inside my head. I go, Colin, you are strong. You are capable. You are strong. You are capable. And every single day in Antarctica, I would say I'd jump out of bed and out loud, as loud as I could to actually say it, out loud. You are strong. You are capable. And to start rewriting that story inside my head. So anyways, I love that. I'm doing this lunge workout, whatever that is. Um, In the context of of my wife, I'll, I'll, I'll segue there, which is, you know, she started from a place of, you know, do you think I could do this one day, you know, kind of thing. And part of that was claiming that identity. It's very easy to say, let me tell you the reasons I can't. Well, I'm not a climber. Right. I'm not a this. That's such a common thing to say, because we get to a point in our adult life and we say to ourselves, I am this and I'm not this. We kind of like bifurcate ourselves in these groups. But a growth mindset says I may not be this thing in this moment, but I can imagine myself learning to become this thing. 
And there's so much power in that. And like I said, when you're young, there seems to be more possibilities. And as we get older, we start telling ourselves, I'm good at math. I'm bad at art. I'm not creative. I'm this like, right. We kind of like filter ourselves in this, but I try to encourage people to break free from that. So my wife did exactly that, which she says, I acknowledge in this moment right now, I am not an Everest climber. I am not a climber to that standard, um, you know, but she also said, but do you think I can become one? And so it was an incredible journey. Um, we trained her up for a year. We're about to get ready to go. We're going to climb. Uh, you can climb. Hold on right there. Trained her up for a year means what? Like what does a, a training regimen look like her so for, we live for in, her a week? We live in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, Jealous. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking out my window at the Tetons right now. So it helps to have some mountains like that. Oh, in our, in way our, to rub it in. Thanks. <laughs> in our backyard. Um, you know, twofold, really. I mean, obviously there's many layers of that, but everything from literally, you know, training to climb by climbing, like actually being in the mountains, getting after it. Obviously, you know, I can help her with all the technical elements. So teaching her how to use an ice axe, how to use crampons, how to this kind of stuff, as well as honestly, I think that sometimes we overthink training in the sense of like, if you're training for something big, it has to be so much harder. We did a lot of probably what you do for her hmm. body weight exercises, lunges, squats, core stability, um, you know, the fundamentals, like at the end of the day, like, you know, I've done some pretty extravagant training and I've done some pretty epic training specifically for some of my, you know, out there expeditions that required that kind of really, really extra layer of stuff. But none of that stuff matters without the fundamentals of really kind of the consistency. And I also just believe in consistency so much, right? It's like, it's one thing to be like, Oh, I'm gonna run this marathon. You've never run before. And then you run every day for three months and maybe you get injured or maybe you don't. And then you do the race or something like that. But like, you're going to get more out of your whole life of running. If you just like four times a week, run three miles, you know, three miles a day, four days a week, it's going to do more than this one month. I ran 200 miles or something like that. Right. Um, and so I'm just a big believer in the fundamentals. Obviously you get, we go, we can talk for hours, the granular, what the exact training protocol look like, but I, I love to encourage people. And it's just no, no different. Like so much of my training, even these world-class world record things, of course, there's a little special sauce here and there, but a lot of it comes down to consistency and fundamentals and training my wife was no different than that. But here's the catch. COVID happens. We literally have our bags packed and we're going to climb Everest from, I climbed it in 2016 from the Nepal side, which is, I guess, the more common side, although a lot of people climb from China, but you can also climb Everest from China. Not a lot of people know this, but the border of China and Nepal is the summit of Everest. Um, And so, we decided to climb from the Chinese side. Uh, I'd never been there before. And I thought that'd be great, you know, unique, different way to see Everest. And she was excited about that route. And we have flights to China for April 4th, 2020. You know, obviously <laughs> we didn't take wow. that flight. The world was shut down uh, and shut down just a couple of weeks before we were departing. And in that COVID lockdown, as I said, we were on the Oregon coast in Oregon for that COVID lockdown where I'm from. And Jenna gave up. I mean, she, she's okay with me sharing this. She gave up. She was like, you know what? Like I trained for a year. It didn't work out. It's a red flag. Like uh, I, I'm not going to train anymore. And I was like, oh, we're just having a down moment. It's a weird moment. Like let's get you back in the routine and we can do it next year. And so she just actually said very adamantly to me, like, no, like I'm done. Like I don't want to climb Everest anymore. Like I'm done. And so for the next year, all through 2020 and the early part of 2021, she didn't train literally did not train. I mean, did she like go on a hike here and there? Sure. Did we still live our normal life? Fine. But like, she was not training and not climbing Everest and a year went by and it was the spring of 2021. And I decided 
we had put this money down um, to climb Everest the year before, and we had enough credit from that to have one climber go back. And so we were like, well, it's like on credit and I would like to go back to Everest. So I was like, if you're not going to go, I'm going to go climb Everest, but in a different way without supplemental oxygen and trying to link these two peaks together doesn't matter, but it's this thing that no one had ever done before. Um, kind of an extreme kind of version of that. And I was like, but why don't you come to base camp with me? Why don't you come to base camp with me? And she was like, great. I've never seen Everest. It was, I've seen all your pictures from the last time you were there. Like, I'd love to come to base camp with you. So we leave on this expedition. She doesn't bring any of her expedition stuff, just enough for like trekking and hiking and, you know, whatever. And she's just going to stay in base camp with me. So we hike there, you know, 17,000 feet takes you like 10 days to hike to base camp. It's still pretty significant, like, you know, yeah, hike to right. get there. And we get there and she gets this glint in her eye, like, I'm like, well, your permit, trekking permit technically gives you the ability to go up two camps higher on Everest. So Mount Everest is actually, there's four camps above base camp and then the summit. And you got to go up and acclimatize and come back down. You probably know this. Um, and uh, I was like, why don't you just come to camp one with me? You were so strong getting to base camp. She's like, do you think, I don't know, I didn't train for this. Still kind of in that loop. But I convince her and she climbs to camp one and she does amazing. She climbs like so strong and so fast and so well. Why don't you come to camp two with me? She comes to camp two with me, but that's where her permit ends. She's like, okay, enough. And at camp two on Everest is where you can like see the summit. You're still 10,000 feet below it, but it's like this incredible mountain amphitheater. And I need to climb up to camp four to acclimatize, spend a few days up there and then climb back down. So I said, just wait for me here in camp two for a few days. So 21,000 feet, she's up there. I have to leave her, which I'm kind of nervous about, but I go up and I have to do my thing. And so I climb up to 26,000 feet into the death zone, spend a couple of days up really high. I'm getting my body acclimatized. And then like, then what you do from there is you go all the way back down to base camp and you rest. And then you wait for a weather window to go for the summit. And I come back down to camp two and she's just got this glint in her eye. Like I've never seen before. And she goes, oh man, I wish I had trained this year you know, I guess we're going to have to come back one day, maybe one day I can climb Everest. And we get back down to base camp and we get back caught in this storm. We're there for a couple of weeks and a couple of weeks go by and she goes, what if one day was today? Just kind of uh, throws it out there. Like, yeah, you can see it. Awesome. It's like she's chewing on it in her brain and you can see where this is going. But basically I was like, well, we don't have the permit and we don't have a ever summit suit. We don't have the gear, like all the things we don't have. But again, that possible mindset switches in and yeah. goes, okay, we don't always have these things in this moment, but can we problem solve this? So I start asking all my friends and whatever, you know, get in touch with the ne Nepalese board of tourism, et cetera. And we source her a down summit suit. We get the latest permit that's ever been issued to climb Everest. And long story short, mm -hmm. um, you know, the June 1st of last, last year in 2021, um, we make it up to the summit of Everest together. And to me, the moral of this story you know, there's so many morals, yeah. but and I go. tell it in, in richer detail in the 12 hour walk, but is it's easy to give up on yourself momentarily, but there's also something superpower in the incremental, like, I'm just going to go to base camp. Yeah. Let me go to camp one, see how I feel. And Jenna's interior dialogue, fighting all those various limiting beliefs. I'm not of this. I'm not a climber. Yes. I'm not, I didn't train. I didn't this, but then incrementally proving those things out and being like, wait, I'm a little stronger than I thought I was. How much further Is can there you a go? book that you've read or resource that's the best um, explanation of limiting beliefs? I'm using that phrase more and more. I mean, for those, for our listeners who don't know, limiting beliefs are the things that you believe that are actually limiting you. Uh, you, you believe them to be true, but they're actually limiting you. Uh, I'm, I'm just uh, limiting belief. What would the example be? Uh, 
I'm just not a workout person. I'm just not a workout person. Okay, that's a limiting belief. So you believe you can't work out and you will die earlier and you won't have as full of a life. Limiting belief. I'll never get over my family of origin pain. Okay. You believe you never can believe it? Get over You're never. Limiting belief. I can't can't do Everest. No. You said no. Ho, ho. It's back to reap what you sow. Hey, we're going to work this out. We're going to plant seeds here. Let's let's keep going until we come to an absolute granite wall. Dude. I'll tell you, I'm, I, I thought this is going to be about physical feats, and you've talked physical feats, but the thing I'm most impressed about is your mind. The book of Proverbs says, as a man thinketh, so is he. I mean, your thought life, brother, your thought life and how you problem solve is really that. all world. I appreciate Dude, that. Dude, seriously, hyper impressed with you. <laughs> and you're smiling. And you're one of these manly man, like, measure my rope kind of guys who's done every kind of thing you could possibly think. And you're smiling. You're not trying to prove yourself. You're, you're a good dude, brother. You are. I like to eat Kellogg's Lucky Charms with you sometime. Oh, you know, I'm going to work on that <laughs> accent for the next time you will be back on. Now I'm going to really work, work that through. But uh, yeah, I mean, look, the limiting beliefs is the, and the reason I think that's so powerful, it's literally the, there's 10 main chapters in my book and they're all broken down around a singular limiting belief. And so literally, you know, from chapter to top of bonds, I hate being uncomfortable. I'm not of this, all the things you aren't. I'm broken. I'll never be the same. I'm afraid of what people will say. I'm afraid of failing. I don't know what to do. I don't have the right friends. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have what it takes. Those are the limiting beliefs. And I break each one of those down through a rich story then tell you how you can overcome them and how the walk can be a metaphor for that. And the conclusion to each chapter is the reframe on that, which is with a possible mindset, I, so the first one was, I hate being uncomfortable. Now the opposite of that, the possible mindset says, I love stepping out of my comfort zone because it leads to fulfillment. I can learn, I can grow and I can become anything. I can heal. Even if I've been broken, I can stand back up. Even if I've been knocked down, I can dare greatly even facing the possibility of criticism. I know that failures are the foundation of my success. Winners lose the most. I trust my gut. I do know the answer. I have the power to choose friends who will help me to become the best version of myself. I have enough time and I spend it wisely. I believe that money is abundant and I can have it too. I have what it takes to climb my Everest. And so the book is a frame on, we have these limiting beliefs. We all deal with them, myself included. I'm not like saying, oh, I'm above this. I'm putting you in the story going, let me show you all the times that I had this limiting belief myself. Like I'm, I'm not some superhuman person. I'm human. I have these limiting beliefs, but guess what? These are just beliefs and beliefs can be rewritten, reframed, restructured. And so by the end of this book, and more importantly, by the end of this walk, I believe we can all cultivate that possible mindset and switch that limiting belief into that possible mindset, into that positive affirmation, which ultimately, is, as you well know, my friend, changes everything. Colin, this has been fantastic. I would, gosh, I'd love to have you back sometime. Would you come back on The Aggressive Life sometime? We will be my pleasure. It will be my pleasure. I had a bunch of things I wanted to get into and talk about. <laughs> like, they're just things like, okay, uh, are you— how much water should we be drinking every day? Like what's your, what's your diet plan? A lot of that stuff. I I find that not really interesting to ask right now, given what we've talked about, but I'd love to get in with that in that stuff with you as well as some other things. So let dirt, let's, uh, I actually gave dirt a microphone today. Derek, can we hear your voice? He did. And I didn't use it very much. Well, I didn't, I didn't ask you anything today either. I was, I was too mesmerized by Colin's story. It was, it was phenomenal. Are you ready to go work out now? Yeah. I'm I'm going to go do some lunges. I I am like, Put me in, coach. Put me in. What I want to know, what I want to know is, are you going to do the twelve-hour walk? Are you going to take one day, walk out your front door, and and walk in silence for a day? Are you going to commit to that? No, that's fine. I just did that last week. You know, so 
No, seriously, right? we, we our, our whole our whole staff um, has a day of solitude where we do just that. So it's kind of in 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 my spiritual rhythms with God, solitude and you know mental space and disconnecting. That's just a normal, normal part of the rhythm. So that wouldn't be as challenging for me as as it is for somebody that. else. But but I do love my phone too. I'm not saying I'm anti phone. I just have a, a brand new iPhone right here. Ooh, no, there it is. There it is. There it is. Bro, with the three, they all. Oh, so I I like text stuff. I love but, my uh, phone too, but I think it's. it's it's useful to take one day alone in Amen. your thoughts without any external inputs. And uh, but we have we have we literally built an app for the twelve hour walk. You can download it, and it actually tracks your walk. And as the map populates, it's like, hey, I'm the first person in Utah to do it. I'm the hundredth person in in New York City to do it. I'm the thousandth person. My goal, my Everest, really is to inspire ten million people to take the twelve hour walk and to be a part of this community of like minded people and tracking people worldwide while they do it um, and inspiring others to to take that change in their own life. So uh, people can visit the twelve hour walk.com download the app buy the book all the things most importantly if you do none of those things i don't care because you can do this by just literally putting on your shoes putting a day on the calendar and walking out your front door and stepping into your new life all right so the was one what i was going to end with how can people find you you just told us 12 hour walk and i said i was done asking questions but i i do gotta ask one it just occurs to me I'm serious. You have smiled more during this interaction than anybody I've had the whole time. And it's not like a, I can tell it's not a smile where it's just um, a nervous smile. Cause I know some people like nervous smile. They smile all the time and they talk and like, relax, relax your Botox face. It's not a nervous smile. It's not a, it's just a habit smile. No, you're generally, generally and genuinely just smiling about something you're talking about. Um, you always been like that? How did you get that? Any tips for us on how to be better attitude people? You know, I think that, you know, um, a quote that I love because it's a stark reminder is uh, the Thoreau quote that says, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Um, and people often misquote it, but I love the second half misquote, which is the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation and die with their song still inside of them. Um, he didn't actually write that last part, but it's a, it's a, it's a darn good second half of that, that quote, the, the flip side of that, that's kind of a, a dark, there's a darkness around that quote an acknowledgement of people being unhappy or unfulfilled. Um, but I think the smile that you're seeing on my face comes from the opposite of that, which is by following my heart, by following my passion, even when it's been unpopular and un untraditional. And I've said no to opportunities or money or the obvious paved path of certain things based on whatever to say no, to really check in with myself and my interior and say, what's the most important thing to me? Um, and living in alignment with that passion has allowed me, I guess, I, I don't know, I didn't realize I was smiling so much, but allows me to, you know, like I said, like I'm, I'm on here talking about the 12 hour walk, not because I care to sell books and make money doing that. I, I don't really don't care about that. I care about it because I'm passionate about it. I wanna leave a positive impact on the world, whatever that is for you whatever lights you up for you. It's doing, I can see it in you when you enter the podcast, like you love doing this. You obviously love being a pastor and the community that you connect with, not because of the status it gives you or this, that, the other thing, because you're in alignment with your values. And so I think for me, um, no matter what that is, so to speak, like I said before, no matter what your Everest is, it could be anything, but pursuing your passion with an op open heart, I think is, is really the core fundamental thing towards uh, peace, happiness, fulfillment, et cetera. Colin O'Brady is his name. The 12-hour walk is his game. 
Kellogg's Lucky Charms are his food. I don't know why I find that so funny. You probably never even eat sugared cereal. You're probably just eating eating granola not every much. morning. Not, <laughs> not much. Not much. And like I said, I got a fake last name anyway. So. Uh. Hey, I, hey, man. Awesome time. Great. Hey, hey, here's the thing, everybody. You don't have to go to Everest. You don't have to. You don't have to walk across Antarctica. But here's the thing I'm getting from Colin. Man, you need to figure out what it is that's going to put a smile on your face. And it's probably something that's more action-oriented. It's probably something that you don't have right now. It's probably something that's going to take a little effort. Reap what you sow. Push out. Abundance mindset. Do something with your life today to honor your life and enjoy your life. And I'm thankful for uh, our guests and my new friend and maybe Dirt, one of my one, not one, absolutely one of the favorite guests I've had. So, Colin, really, I don't, I don't say that. I don't say I, that seriously. Means a lot. I mean, great. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Yeah, all right, man. We'll do it again. So, hey, that's it. We'll see you next time on the Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.